Uh, so if, uh, scripture, if you look at the, the Bible as a whole, Scripture is filled with illustrations of shepherds and sheep, as you probably know. Uh, here's some facts for you. The Bible uses the word sheep about 176 times, the word lambs 164 times, and shepherds 80 times. And yet, when you hear the phrase um, shepherd or you think of sheep, you probably almost automatically think of Psalm 23, at least I certainly do. Um, Charles Spurgeon, whose birthday it is today, he's 188 years old, so he's pretty old, uh, said this, I compare Psalm 23 to the lark that sings as it flies and flies as it sings until it is out of sight, but yet not out of hearing. As you read this, you will experience the days of heaven on earth. So Psalm 23 is rich for a reason. Um, one commentator called, uh, this is like the, the Christian's creed. So if you had a creed you live by, Psalm 23 is kind of your whole Christian life in a paragraph, essentially, in a few sentences. Um, in the original Hebrew, the exact, so if you were to divide um, this psalm in the original Hebrew words, uh, the exact middle phrase is verse 4, where it says, you are with me. So there's 26 words before, 26 words after, almost as if the center of this psalm is for you to know that if you are in Christ, uh, the Lord is with you. And that's such a good reminder, and it's very encouraging. Uh, perhaps you've had this psalm maybe read to you by your mom or your dad or your grandfather, grandparents. Um, I feel like I've heard this psalm, I don't know how many times growing up, I just, my dad pointed me to it, heard it in Sunday school sermon. So just it's such a, a sweet text, as you know. Um, and the first words of this psalm are actually, in the Hebrew, there are four letters, and it's what we would say is... Um, Y-H-W-H, right? Yahweh. So the, the Lord's name, it doesn't have any vowels, it's just consonants. So this text is about the I am, right? Who should I tell them sent me? Well, tell them I am sent you. So prior to this, um, David was not a lover of the Lord, right? David was never, he was not born a believer, just like none of us are. Uh, before having the Lord his shepherd, just like the rest of us, we are not born sheep of Yahweh. Instead, uh, we are born without God, right? Because of our fallen Adam, we are actually, according to the Bible, called much more um, terrifying things rather than sheep. We are called wolves, goats, or a beast. So it's very comforting words to hear in Father's Day, I understand. Uh, and yet by nature, we do follow like sheep, right? We all by nature follow um, a very cruel shepherd uh, who is the devil, right? His pastures are barren. He doesn't offer life. He brings no comfort. And he actually hates his sheep, right? He doesn't like you, he hates you. But like sheep, we willingly follow him. But God, being rich in mercy, saves us, right? And makes us gather to him. He saves sheep, right? That's why this psalm should be yours if you are a believer. Uh, real quick, I want to give you four brief, very brief um, descriptions of what sheep are to why this psalm should be incredibly encouraging to you and should be relevant to any believer. Uh, number one, is from, from a book I read, but number one, sheep are dependent. So left alone, uh, we would die in more ways than one. And all of us know that we are, we would fall apart, right? Christ is our all in all. Uh, like sheep, we are foolish. Um, we would die in the winter. Uh, we'd be taken by thieves, eaten by wolves. Uh, without Christ, we would just do something foolish. Um, it, as the familiar words in the song say, number three, we are prone to wander. Uh, we are easily wandering from the Lord, right? When we sin, we just wander. 
We look into a ravine and go, oh, that looks pretty safe in this ditch, and we just fall into a ditch like a dumb sheep does, right? And lastly, raise my hand here, this is so true. Um, I, like a sheep, am very stubborn. I am resistant. I am slow to learn. I must be carried to my destination because I would rather sit sometimes. So like sheep, we need the Lord to carry us, to lead us, and to take care of us. Uh, this psalm, it, it, for the sermon outline, there's two, basically two main points and then a couple under it. But the main, one through four talks about the Lord being a shepherd. And verses five through six, kind of the Lord being your host. And we'll unpack that. So first, let's look how the Lord is your shepherd. And he shepherds you, number one, by providing all your needs. So he provides my need. Look at verse one. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Probably one of the most reassuring statements in the entire Bible. There's probably no sentence like this. David himself, as you know, was a shepherd. Uh, he knew the amount of strength and care, um, the watchful eye, the protection, the strength he had to have as a shepherd to take care of his wandering flock. And just like a shepherd, the shepherd chooses his sheep. Right? The sheep don't choose the shepherd. The shepherd chooses the sheep. And like your shepherd, you're, you are chosen by your shepherd. In the New Testament, and you're probably thinking of this passage regarding sheep, is in John chapter 10, where we read uh, in the New Testament that the good shepherd of Psalm 23 is actually Jesus himself. So if you look at John 10, this is what Jesus says in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. What passage do you think he's referring to? Well, it has to be this. Or the, or the Ezekiel passage we had read this morning. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a higher hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them away and scatters them. He flees because he is, hired to, he is a higher hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So if you are a sheep, it's because the Lord has chosen you and called you to himself as a sheep. So what's good to know is if you're a believer, your entire identity is found in your relationship to your shepherd. You are first and foremost a Christian. He is your shepherd. You are a sheep. Um, everything else in life, whether it's your vocation, your family status, where you live, what country you live in, what street you live on, your last name, all those things biblically are completely irrelevant. They carry zero weight. What matters most is if you are a sheep, and if you are, you're related to Christ, and that identity is bigger than anything in this life. The most freeing reality, most free reality in the world is that I'm Christ. Who cares about anything else? I have nothing to worry about. I'm Christ. He is the foreground, we are the background. And because he is my shepherd, look at verse 1 again, I shall not want. Um, maybe you're like me, and you are very discontent at times. I don't have to ask if you are, because I know that you are. Because we live in a world where if you don't have enough, you're doing something wrong. You need to have bigger storehouses, bigger houses, better this, more of this. Um, coveting is a virtue in the world, right? Why do we covet? Why do we lack contentment? I think if I had to say, speaking from experience, from being someone who is discontent because I'm a sinner, it would be number one, at times I believe that God is holding out. Why don't you just give it? I think it'd be great if I had it. Or secondly, number two, um, I know what's best for me. And in doing that, I'm saying, okay, Lord, yeah, I know you're omniscient, I know you're sovereign, but 
I really know if I had that, my life would be a lot better off. What do you really know? And that's just awful. And in doing that, we're breaking the 10th commandment. Right? The 10th commandment is you shall not covet. Coveting is desiring something so much that we, we lose our contentment in God. So it's not wrong to want things. Like you should want to eat lunch. That's probably, that's good. But contentment or coveting is when you're so gripped by something. If you don't have that, you don't feel like you're you. I, I don't have this. I'm not, a, I'm not me anymore. I'm somebody else. And in doing that, you're actually breaking the first two commandments as well. So what is the cure to discontentment? Uh, if you have your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 4, a text that many of you probably know, starting in verse 11. A lot of times this text is written on people's basketball shoes as they shoot a half-court shot, hoping I, I, I can do all things through Christ and make this half-court shot. I want to show you what this text means and why it's so helpful. So Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul's point in this passage is regarding contentment. If you look at verse 11, he says, I've, I've learned the secret, actually. I know how to be content in every situation. And the way you're content is he said it, he said it in chapter 3, verse 9. He says this. To be found, I'm sorry, verse 8, my bad. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So if I don't have something, I feel like I'm at a loss. So if I don't have that nice car, that bigger house, bigger bank account, better retirement, I feel like I'm at a loss. So if you're a Christian... Having Christ is so much better that not having anything, to not have Christ would be a loss. If you have Christ, everything is a loss. And what God typically does in your life and in my life is he gives and he takes away. He enriches my neighbor and it withholds from me. He, arrange, he arranges my life in such a way that I'm going to grow in contentment despite being discontent, Right? So he'll remind me, Kale, that's not your treasure, Christ. That's not going to make you happy. And they're not happy because they're going to want the next upgrade too. So it's to train me, right? We must see that Christ is our treasure. If he is my shepherd, I won't want. Then Philippians 4.19 is very clear. It just says that God will supply all of your needs in Christ Jesus. What do you, are you in need? Will he supply what you need? So we find that Christ is our everything and God supplies. Uh, Robert Murray Machane says this, that he that paid his taxes from a fish's mouth will supply all my needs. So the Lord is my shepherd. I have no wants because he provides my needs. Number two, the Lord guides my life. Look at verses two and three. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So in verse 2, the Lord leads us in the wilderness of the world, in a land that is parched from knowing Christ and just being at enmity with God. We have a shepherd who will make me lie down. Uh, like finding green grass in a desert, the scriptures tell us very clearly that the Lord will give you rest in the world, that he will make you lie down. I appreciate the fact that it says he will 
make you because I don't like to rest. I like to work and get everything done as much as I can because I have tomorrow to do it too. There's a reason why the fourth commandment of taking a Sabbath rest exists, guys. We have to slow down. If not, the Lord might, <laughs> he might make you. He will make you rest, right? We're often restless on earth despite seeking to find rest in everything else, right? So what we typically do is when we're so restless, we flee to other things to find rest, right? And in these things, we find that they're empty. Well, if I have this, I can finally be saved from this feeling. I can, I can feel better. I can have rest. It's kind of like a savior. If I have this, I'll, I'll feel better. I'll be able to rest finally. And what happens is, is you, you know you're restless if you are easily frustrated when you don't have certain things. You're always angry. You're always on edge. You're impatient. You're easily annoyed because you're restless. Augustine said this, that we were made for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. So we are encouraged, we are rebuked almost, to find your rest in Christ. Jesus had no place to lay his head. Do you, do you remember that? But he will give you a place to lay your head. Isn't that assuring? So we're called to rest in Christ, to trust him, to relax, to by faith, to say he will take care of everything. I can trust him. He's a good shepherd. Look at verse 3. The shepherd also restores my soul. He takes great care of his little sheep. He restores them. Uh, we always want a revival in America. We want people to come back to Christ and to, to forsake sin. But one of the most important things is that you have a revival in your heart pretty much every single day. Uh, if you're not coming to Christ, if you're not drinking of his word and relying on him by faith and praying, you are, you're parched. You need to be restored. The same God who on earth multiplied a little tiny lunch box meal to fill to feed thousands of people can multiply your faith to trust him he can really give you rest so your soul is of great importance you must find your rest in christ and in doing so he he um he turns us around he sets us in the right way and look at verse three this is the point so he leads you besides to waters he gives you green pastures he restores your soul for this main reason, that you would walk in paths of righteousness. And he actually leads you in it. We talk about it a lot, I think, or I feel like I do. I feel like it's just a helpful reminder that uh, to live a holy life is actually a blessing. It's a blessing that we often forget. And to be holy, to, to be righteous, to have a righteous life, to live righteously, to have a desire for it is definitional of what a Christian is. So those who would say they're a Christian but have zero desire for holiness or righteousness strongly consider that you may not be converted. The Bible is just crystal clear on this, right? And in mercy, the Lord is actually shepherding us towards holiness. So if you're a Christian, you will progressively become more Christ-like, right? You're not just left to say, figure it out. Lord, I'm a dumb sheep. I can't figure it out by myself. So in his mercy, he, he shepherds you. He, he pushes you, then guides you that way. Christians should desire Christ like bees to nectar. It's pretty sweet. That's where I'm headed, right? We should always find our desires worse than Christ, our ways feeble compared to his commandments. 
Notice the word here is plural. It's the paths of righteousness. So it's not enough to just walk holy in one aspect of your life, but in everything else, you're not. Right? It's often been said what you are, what, what is the definition of character is often what you are in private, you are in public, right? Same being a Christian. If your private life as a Christian is just abysmal, but your public life is you're virtuous, there's a disconnect, right? And that's all your past, whether it's at work or at home or you're driving when you're in your room and no one sees you. What does your life look like? 1 John chapter 1 is so helpful, and I encourage you to read that later this week. So in your life, you walk many paths, and like these paths, um, if, you're, if you are hiking and you see, a, oh, look, look at this trail, look at this path. Well, they're for you to walk on, they're very visible to everybody else. Well, your Christian life is very visible to everybody else, and that, in fact, is the most important thing. Look at verse 3 again. Why does the Lord lead you in paths of righteousness? Why does your righteous living matter? I'll tell you the answer from verse 3. For whose namesake? It certainly doesn't say mine. It's for his namesake. Isn't it interesting? This passage is so beautiful that while this verse is, it's all about you. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. Isn't that shocking? It's about you living rightly, but it has nothing to do with what people think about you. But it's what Christ looks like and how you live. So God leads you in holiness, not so you look good. Though that happens, you should look righteous, but it's so Christ will look good. For his name's sake, God's glory is at stake in your life. Are you aware of that? Your life is so important that it reflects what you think about Christ. Meaning that people will get an idea of how much Christ is worth by the way that you live. Doesn't that give your life a little more weight all of a sudden? Sure does to me. This is why, uh, so just recently, um, for work I was thinking about this, uh, we have to wear FedEx clothes, right? You wear a FedEx hat, FedEx shirt, shorts that are just ugly as can be. Drive a big FedEx truck with a big FedEx label. Our boxes say FedEx. Why is that? So people will say, well, if you're a good employee, you represent a pretty good company, apparently, because you're working well, right? That's, what, that's why we have jerseys, right? You, put a, you brand people so you know who they represent, so if they work well, I should probably call that company. That, that, that was a good employee, right? It's the same thing. You, you have a, a, a label over your life, and it's Christ. So your walk is actually more about Christ than it is about you, even when no one's around. The Bible says that God created you for his glory in Colossians chapter 1. We know that sin is falling short of God's glory in Romans 3, 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 14 says, Jesus came to save sinners to show the glory of God's grace. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says to do everything for the glory of God. Your life is not about you. <laughs> Isn't that relieving? So how do you do this practically? I want to give you a real quick word here, then go on to the next point. I think maybe this is something that we, we know about. We know we should live for God's glory, but what does that look like? Money is given to you so that you would live in such a way that it is evident to the world that money is not your God, but Christ is. And by God, I mean your hope, your Savior, your joy, your confidence, your identity. 
family is given to you, work is given to you, retirement, friends, pleasure is all given to you so that we would live in such a way that the world would be so clear to say, that's not his God, Christ is. So they'll say, God must be really real to that person. He doesn't live like everybody else with these things. It's not about us. It's about his namesake. So in all of my life, my shepherd guides me. Lastly, in this section, verse 4. So first, he, he takes care of us. He provides for us. He guides my life. And now he abides in sufferings. Look at verse 4. One of the brightest places that we see for his namesake. So beautiful, this glory of Christ. And then it, we go to this valley of the shadow of death. It is very easy to um, fleshly eyes, to just the eyes that you go get check out at the doctor. It's very easy to believe that God is with certain people. Well, look what they have. Of course, God's with them. Look at their life. It's pretty easy to me. They look pretty blessed, right? What a difficult life that is. In days of green pastures and still waters and righteous paths, it's very easy to believe that the Lord is with us. But how about when you have a very, very dark day? When you are on the hospital sickbed, what are you supposed to think when your property is torched down to ashes? When this church gets a brick thrown through a window, Maybe, you're, maybe if there's a car accident, bodies are mangled. You get that autopsy report that you just, <laughs> okay. What should you think then? And all these things, they're like a furnace. And according to the Bible, faith grows much better in these areas than it does in the areas of plenty. Especially when you know that your father is the refiner of your faith. Faith is more precious than gold, says 1 Peter chapter 1. And again, Robert Murray Machane said this, that dark days make Jesus bright. So when we are in the valley of the shadow of death, we have peace and we have contentment and rest, not because of anything with us, but because for you are with me, so I will fear no evil. One of my favorite, um, all my favorite people I like in the world are pretty much dead don't know why that is. They just seem to speak a lot better a couple hundred years ago. I don't know why that is. Uh, in 1636, a pastor named Samuel Rutherford, who was pretty well known, was banished from Scotland because he was preaching the gospel. He was writing against certain doctrines, and he refused to conform to the Episcopal Church. So there's a state church. You have to believe and do X, Y, and Z, which were not according to the Scripture. And he said, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep preaching. So they threw him in jail for two years. They banned him from his town. He was, he was in a jail that was very far away for two years. And if you're wondering, jails in the 1600s weren't exactly delightful. Probably guess. He was away from his congregation, away from his hometown, away from his family, couldn't go to church. And yet, he was the happiest person in jail. He would say that. He said that his prison became Christ's palace to him because he knew that in this, God was working for his good. He began to love Christ more, to enjoy him more, and to grow in faith because of the darkness, not in spite of it. And as Christians, we only face the shadow of death. Verse 4 says it's the shadow of death. It's still ugly. Death is not pretty. 
It's wrong. That's not natural. It's because of sin, right? That's why we hate it so much. But because of Christ's resurrection, death is sweeter to us, isn't it? I mean, it's different. It's, it's like sprinkling sugar. I just, I mean, it tastes better all of a sudden, right? To the believer. Jesus' death and resurrection defanged death. I heard a pastor once say, we're scared of snakes that want to bite us, right? It's like death with its fangs. Uh, if you defang a viper, you know how it, do you know what it's going to bite you with? It's gums. You guys scared of gums biting you? Well, no. So death has been defanged, right? The threats of hell and judgment for Christians are removed. Therefore, death is stepping over time, right? So when you suffer in this world, you must remember that he is with you, that he comforts you. Christ is your heaven. I've heard it said before that hell with Christ is better than heaven without him. Again, that man in prison, uh, Samuel Rutherford wrote this. While, while he was in prison, in it for two years, two long years, this is what he wrote. Losses, disappointments, ill tongues, loss of friends, houses, our country, are God's workmen set on to work good to you out of everything that befalls you. Let not his dealings seem harsh, rough, or unfatherly, because they are unpleasant. It's not pain that we fear. We fear the death part. We don't like the pain. But if he's with you, it's a, he's growing you. And we don't see it that way, I know. But in the valley is where God dwells. Sweetness is sweeter when there's bitter in it, right? I will gladly pass through every valley if Christ is there. That should be the song of our heart, isn't it? If he's in that, that's where I'm heading. I don't want to go anywhere else but where he is. Oh, for a closer walk with thee. Friends, he who suffer on the cross will not leave you in your suffering. He will sustain you. So your shepherd does these three things. He abides in suffering. He provides your needs and he guides your life. He is your all. Jesus is your all in all and all your alls. I think I said that right. Lastly, the verses five through six. So he's your shepherd. Now the Lord is your host. If you look at the first few, uh, the first section we just went through, it's almost kind of like a close up, right? Every little part, he guides you, he leads you, gives you peace, takes care of you. It's all these little Kind of like a, a zoom-in picture. Well, now I feel like David kind of zooms out and gives you a, a broad scope of your life. Look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So now the Lord is pictured as like a host. He's having me over for dinner. I'll make the table. I'll make the food. You just come on by. He's serving us. You need to pause and think about what I just said and what we just read. The Lord is serving you. Does that sound crazy to you? Isn't that strange? He prepares a table for you. You don't serve him. I'll prepare a table for you. You are my guest. I will do all the work. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. You... Perhaps you think of this verse when I was walking through this text. This is the first verse that came to mind. Well, maybe after thinking about it, but this verse came to mind. Mark 10, 45 says this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served. You know that? But to give 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we often call Christian work and obedience, what do we call it? Well, serving the Lord, right? Oh, I, we all know what we mean in that. We're working with him, right? We're not like giving God a hand like, oh, he's, he's slack over here. I'll pick up the slack. We know that's not what it means, right? And yet the Bible is super clear that when we are obeying Christ, we're not serving him as if he needed anything. Instead, he's actually serving us. Uh, John Piper wrote this in regards to this exact topic. The good news is that the radical call to Christian discipleship is not a call to serve Jesus, but to be served by Jesus as we serve others, to be ransomed by him from death. So that is the gospel, which makes sense. Think about every other religion out there. What do they say? You have a leader and a so-called God, and what do they say? Serve me, subjects, right? Do my bidding, do what I say, yada, 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 right? But in the gospel, isn't it shocking that Jesus doesn't need you to serve him? He serves you. He serves us. He does all the work, right? He came to serve us by saving us. And now we respond in praise and worship of him in such a way that we also serve others. So the Christian life then is a continual reliance and being served by Christ. He demands all of your life. We must deny ourselves and trust in his work. And now he promises to prepare for you a table because we are poor beggars. He does this in the world in the midst of our enemies, right? God supplies and serves us by the power of his spirit, by his providence in your life. And if you think of this picture, if you're, in, if you're in wartime, you typically have rations, right? They don't give you like a grill and a steak, right? They give you like, you just tear, open the bag, just chug it and go, right? Well, in this wartime, seeing the Lord says, just take a seat. But the enemies are around. Sit down. Relax. Take off your shoes. Eat. He welcomes us. Christian maturity then I want you to hear this. This is so helpful, I believe. Christian maturity is not growing in your independence and self-sufficiency from God. I don't need as much grace. I'm figuring it out by myself. Instead, the mark of a Christian, of a mature Christian, is growing more dependent on Christ and knowing you are more helpless than you were. Falling upon the everlasting arms. After all, God says that He is the vine. And you are the roots. Oh, no, that's not what he said. We're the branches. We are utterly dependent, right? We can't do anything by ourselves. So the Christian life then is knowing Christ, is having communion, it's being invited by him, it's sitting with him, dwelling with him, and he deals well with you. He anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows, which is a symbol of honor and washing and blessing in life. So as soon as we leave the valley, the shadow of death, you have a table. He entreats you. He sweetens your time. Jesus called the anointed one. As you read, uh, being anointed with your, anointing your head, Jesus the anointed one or the Messiah, the same phrase. And we're the anointed ones in Christ by his indwelling spirit within us, uniting us to Christ. So friends, what greater blessing is it in life to know that you have communion, you have fellowship, you have a table with the creator could your life be any more easy, any better? 
You sit with the Creator every single day. You have something that angels do not have. In your life, your cup overflows. Your life is rich in mercy because Christ is rich in mercy. In Ephesians 2, He gives freely. He loves you dearly. Therefore, you need to, like me, cast grumbling far from you. I grumble. If I get an Academy Award, I would already have five. I'm a grumbler. It's a spiritual gift, I'm pretty sure. Why do I grumble when I have this? Cast grumbling far away. One writer said this, We fail him, but blessed be his name. He never fails us, and he never will. We doubt him. We mistrust his love and his providence and his guidance. We faint because of the day. We murmur along the way. Yet all the time, he is there blessing us. Lastly, we have eternity with God. So lastly, David ends this he ends with the Lord is with us, and then we end up with the Lord, right? Verses 1 and 6 are kind of the bookmarks. We start with him, we end with him, right? And in verse, all the way through this, we see we, we've been led through valleys and hills, rest and calm, pasture, valley of the shadow of death, good and bad. And all the while we can sing that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. In earth I've received nothing but mercy. Um, like a heavenly secret service agent, I'm being followed all the time, right? President can't go anywhere, anywhere without his entourage behind him, his motorcade following him, right? Your life is just like that. And actually, in the original language, um, it's, the word follow is just not strong enough. It should be pursued, like a horse would chase you down. So surely, goodness and mercy are chasing you down all of your life. The life our life here is good, which is true. But it's nothing compared to what Christ is is pursuing us with, right? Um, Across the street, there's a cemetery, which you obviously know. And upon every tombstone, there are at least, there's more things, but there's typically at least uh, three things. There is a number when they are born, there is a dash, and there is a death number, right? And if you are a believer, you should be able to think about what happens in that dash? How many days were spent? How many hours had? How many years lived? And as a believer, can you truly and faithfully look at that dash and say, goodness and mercy all of my life? I think that you can. And yet it's better still as we end here. Look at verse 6. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where we're going. That's what he's shepherding us towards, right? Heaven is heaven because Christ is there. Without him, heaven would be empty. Charles Spurgeon again said, If there were no hell, the loss of heaven would be hell. But thanks be to God that he brings us all the way home. He brings his sheep all the way to the fold. One day we will live with the Lord forever. We will receive eternity with God Goodness and mercy will pursue us, and we will live in goodness and mercy the rest of our lives, infinite upon infinite. (laughs) Randy Alcorn said this, Not only will we see his face and live, but we will likely wonder if we ever lived before we saw his face. Isn't that good? I want to end with a quick story. There's a Baptist missionary who lived in the 1800s named Adonai Judson. 
who's ministering to the Burmese people in Southeast Asia. I had a class with a young man who was from Burma. And so he's a believer because of this man's work. And Adonai Judson faced many terrible things. He suffered much. He lost two wives. So he's married. His first wife, she died overseas. Married his second wife, she died overseas. He lost six children overseas. He was tortured many times of doubt. He was there for over 30 years laboring and pursuing faithfulness to an unreached, hostile people. They did not want him to come. He was there for 30 years. And he died of sickness. And on his deathbed, this is what he said. I'm not tired of my work. Neither am I tired of the world. Yet when Christ calls me home... I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from his school. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. Let's pray.